A couple of years ago, I took my oldest two children to a Ravens game. Sorry if the timing on this is bad. It was a Monday night game and on my son's birthday. And so we got decked out in our team gear and joined the crowds at M&T Bank Stadium to root for our team. The twist, of course, in this story is that we were rooting for the Ravens opponents. Uh, you see, they were playing the Texans, and we're loyal Texans fans, and so we took advantage of the opportunity uh, with our favorite NFL team playing so close by uh, to go and offer our support to the road underdogs. Uh, as you might imagine, it was a strange and sometimes uncomfortable experience. Standing alone to clap uh, and cheer for our team when they made a big play, which didn't happen all that often in that particular game. Uh, hearing the crowded stadium celebrate when our team made a mistake, hearing the, crowd, uh, the occasional heckling from Ravens fans uh, seated nearby. People were generally pretty gentle, but there was a little bit of frustration hurled our way at times. Uh, though we had a good time and folks were generally pretty friendly to us, there was still the sense throughout the game that we didn't really belong. We were out of place. The book of 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians in southwestern Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, whose experience of life as followers of Jesus was, to a much greater extent and at a much higher cost, similar to ours as Texans fans at M&T Bank Stadium. They don't fit. They stand alone for the things of God and his kingdom. The world around them is put off by their presence and often mistreats them. You don't have to think very hard to see some clear parallels to our own day and to our own time. Even here in our own country, our own culture, uh, Christianity has certainly fallen out of favor in the sort of public sphere. There was a time in American life where Christian values and virtues were celebrated and going to church and being a, you know, a respectable Christian was, uh, was a favorable thing in our society. Those days are no more. There, there is increasing uh, hostility toward the church, frustration uh, expressed toward Christians for their so-called backwards views and things like that, doing uh, some, nothing more scandalous or strange than simply believing what Christians have believed for centuries and what the Word of God teaches regarding issues of gender and sexuality is to set yourself at odds with our culture. This is the way that things go for Christians in the United States, even now. And in other parts of the world, the situation is even more dire. I'm sure that you've seen uh, news reports and perhaps you've listened to podcasts or interviews and things that, that point out the terrible suffering that Christians in other countries in the world experience even now where we think the pressure is really high and we're being persecuted for our faith. There are places in the world where to be a Christian, to publicly identify with Christ, is basically a death sentence. There are Christians being martyred even now uh, for their faith in Jesus Christ. So it is no small thing, and it is a very uh, real challenge that Christians face from the beginning. It's this way in our world now, and it was this way for the first generation of Christians as well. And so Peter writes uh, this letter uh, probably in the year 62 or 63, so roughly three decades after Christ has uh, lived and died and raised and then ascended uh, back to heaven. 
Um, and it was intended to be circulated among a number of churches uh, in this uh, region. I don't want to spend too much more time in kind of introductory comments, like just giving you background on the letter, uh, because actually a good bit of that will be covered in the first couple of verses uh, of the letter itself that we're going to look at in in detail today. So uh, with that said, let's go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter. It's late in the New Testament, uh, one of these short letters just a few books before uh, Revelation, which closes the New Testament. So if you're not sure how to get there, hopefully that'll help. So I'm going to read for you the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And you might think, oh, well, that'll be quick, but there's a lot packed in to these two verses. And so let me read for you uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Thus Peter begins this letter. And it is a greeting. It is a standard greeting in in terms of introducing himself and his audience, but there is much more weight to this greeting than a mere, hi, I'm Kyle, you're so-and-so, let's get on with it. This is, there is theological weight behind these, this, this greeting. And I think there's great intentionality in Peter's mind in writing exactly what he writes to begin this letter. Because again, he's writing to a group of Christians who are being mistreated, who are social outcasts. At this time, we think it's probably before the persecution of Christians is at its most intense, probably not yet kind of the empire-wide official policy of the Roman Empire to, uh, to snuff out Christianity wherever they can do that. But there's still a, a social cost to being a Christian. There's a strangeness, there's an out-of-placeness on the part of Christians that they experience, and they're suffering. And so Peter writes this letter to a suffering church with the intention of pointing them toward what they have in Christ and encouraging them, lifting their view above the circumstances to the glory and grace of their God. And so he begins... Uh, very intentionally by uh, identifying exactly who they are, not just their churches in the region of Asia Minor, but who they really are, their true identity. If I were to put a big idea on these verses, and really, honestly, it could extend to the big, a big idea for the entire letter, it would be this. Because you are God's chosen people, live godly lives in a world that is hostile toward your faith. This is the intention of Peter behind his introduction to the letter and indeed behind the letter as a whole. So let's just take these verses kind of one line at a time. It begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so it's traditional, of course, for a letter writer to identify himself so the people who receive that letter know who the letter comes from. And he calls himself Peter. 
This is the same Peter who headlined the list of Jesus' 12 disciples in all the Gospels and in Acts. So when the list of Jesus' disciples are given, Peter is always the first one. Sometimes he's called Simon Peter. Simon was his given name, and then Jesus sort of renames him as Peter, Petros, which means rock. It's the same Peter who made the good confession about Jesus in Matthew 16, 16, when Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon's answer was, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response to that confession was, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A great promise of Christ to his church. The church will prevail. And it's this confession of Christ, as, that, of Jesus as Christ and Son of God that comes from the mouth of Peter that Jesus says, I will build my church upon this foundation. It's the same Peter who, on the night when Jesus was arrested and tried, when the pressure was at its peak, denied his Lord three separate times, insisting that he did not know him and was not associated with Jesus in any way. That is a great mark of shame and a burden that we know that Peter must carry in his heart, the, the memory of that denial of Jesus. And of course, we know that Jesus mercifully and beautifully restored Peter and forgave him and, and placed him back into a position of, of leadership and influence for his sake at the end of John's gospel. It's the same Peter who on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus has been raised and has returned to heaven, who stood before a crowd of thousands of Jews and Gentiles from all over the region and boldly proclaimed Christ crucified and urged them to repent and to place their faith in Jesus, and whose subsequent ministry is the subject of roughly the first third of the book of Acts. If you're reading through the book of Acts, the first like 11 or 12 chapters have to do with Peter's ministry, with Peter's preaching and proclamation of the gospel. This is the Peter who writes this letter. It's a Peter who's well known among the Christian community. And so these, these Christians in the various churches uh, in, in the area that, that he sends it to would know who Peter is. So when Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, there's immediate recognition, immediate identification of who it is that writes this letter. And that's important because Peter gives one designation for himself by way of introduction. He doesn't go on a list. He doesn't say any of the things I just said to you. That stuff would have come immediately to mind upon the designation, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It is surely intended not only to identify him as that same Peter, but to point his readers to the unique authority that Jesus had vested in him as an apostle. Tom Schreiner says uh, that Peter writes as an authoritative messenger and interpreter of the gospel. What Peter writes then is not merely his personal opinion. As an apostle, he is commissioned by Christ and writes God's words to the churches. So when Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's not only identifying himself, he's also reminding his readers, the words I give you here are the words of 
the Lord. They are authoritative for the church. All churches in all places in all times. And so, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit has seen fit to pass this letter down to us as well. And so we do well to listen carefully to its instruction. So Peter has identified himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he's going to, to mention in the second part of verse 1, to whom he is writing. And this one little phrase is loaded with truth. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he lists the places where this group of of Christians has been dispersed. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these are all uh, places within southwestern Asia, modern-day Turkey. Um, and r- roughly, they roughly make, if you, if you imagine somebody's journey from place to place carrying a letter. He sends this letter by Silvanus, who also goes by the name Silas. You'll see him in the book of Acts as an associate of Paul. Um, if you imagine his journey from place to place with this letter, it's the, the, those places are roughly a circle. So he starts with Pontus and then goes around a circle and then ends uh, at Bithynia, perhaps to position him for the next leg of a journey somewhere else. So certainly some Jews would have lived in these areas, but they're predominantly, uh, it's a predominantly Gentile Audience. This is uh, part of the, the Roman Empire, of course. It's Roman territory, largely inhabited by Gentiles. And so most scholars think that this letter's main audience is Gentile Christians. That is non-Jewish Christians. One of the reasons for that is the simple geography of it. There's other reasons, um, even within the letter itself. So for one thing, there's multiple references in the letter to the reader's pagan past. So he'll say things like uh, to give up the passions of your former ignorance, which is you have a hard time thinking that, that Peter would say that to a Jewish audience because they grew up with the word of God, with the law of God. They didn't, have, they didn't come from a place of ignorance. They came from a place of having been given and entrusted the word of God. He tells them uh, to abandon the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Again, if, these are, if this is a mostly Jewish audience, their forefathers would have been those handing down the word of God to them. Uh, he says that the, the Gentiles are surprised when you do not join them in godless living and various carousing and partying and things like that. And again, those are things that, that they would have associated with pagan sort of godless uh, people. And so for those reasons within the letter, uh, it seems clear that he's writing to a mostly non-Jewish audience. And then he uses uh, the term uh, dispersion here. Um, so the, the dispersion really just means those who are spread out, right? But typically, traditionally, the word dispersion is a Jewish term designating descendants of Israel scattered throughout the empire. It had been used from the Old Testament days on, certainly through this day as well. And so Peter here takes a term, a concept that's generally, traditionally associated with Israel, and he applies it to the church, which in fact is a pattern that he will follow multiple times throughout this letter, taking language and images and truths that applied in the Old Testament to Israel, and 
reapplies them, as it were, to the church. That is, Jews and Gentiles who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And so he applies this dispersion term in that way to those who are uh, the elect exiles of the dispersion. And he's talking here about Christians who are scattered throughout this region. The second, actually, so we're, we're taking these backwards, so dispersion. The second uh, designation there is that they're exiles. The people to whom he's writing are exiles, which is another traditionally Jewish designation. For a Jewish person, this would call to mind the period of time in Israel's history when both northern and southern kingdoms were conquered and carried off to Babylon to live under the rule of foreign kings away from their homes and from the temple where they would go and worship God. And so the exile motif, the exile theme, uh, was readily uh, in the mind of a Jewish audience. But here he applies this term again to this non, mostly non-Jewish Christian audience, calling them exiles. And he doesn't mean it in a literal sense. He's not saying here that they aren't citizens of the country where they're living. He's, refer, he's using the term exile here as, as a metaphor in a spiritual sense, basically saying this world is not your home. This world is not your home. Now, of course, Peter would remember Jesus' teaching in John 15, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Peter would have in his mind very keenly the teaching of Jesus and the experience of being pressed upon and persecuted because of his faith. And so he's telling his audience here from the get-go what you're experiencing in the suffering at the hands of others is par for the course, if you will, for those who are living as exiles. This is not where you belong. This is not your home. You don't fit. You should not be surprised that you don't fit in because you belong to God. And this alien existence, if you will, is one of the recurring themes of the letter. Really, you could call it the situation into which the apostle writes. Christians are living as exiles, those who truly belong to a heavenly kingdom and are therefore at odds with the world around them. And that alienation brings hardship and suffering into their lives. What can Peter write to these struggling Christians to give them a Godward perspective of their lives and to strengthen them for the hard road that they're walking. One of the answers to that question comes in the next word that we'll look together. It's actually the first word in that uh, three-word phrase uh, designating them, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. They are the elect. Yes, they're scattered. Yes, they're exiles, but they're elect exiles. And in the mind of Peter, that makes all the difference. What does this mean? It means they were chosen by God to be his people. So Peter wants to encourage his readers to endure hardship, to have faith and courage for the suffering they're sure to face as Christians, and he grounds that encouragement in the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election, in a nutshell, is this. 
God, in eternity past, sovereignly chose, that is, elected individuals from among the fallen human race to be recipients of his saving grace and to be adopted as his children. In some ways, of course, the doctrine of election brushes against our natural pride and sense of self-determination. We're ingrained with that, not just as fallen human beings, but even maybe more uniquely as Americans, like freedom and liberty and I call my own shots is like such a high value for us that it's so, it, it, it sounds strange. It, it, it kicks against something very deep within us. And so not surprisingly, it's been hotly debated among Christians for a long time. But for Peter, it's not a matter for theological controversy. It's a source of tremendous comfort and confidence for weary Christians. Take a look at how he unpacks the status of Christians as God's elect. So he's identified them as elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he goes on in verse 2 to give three phrases, three prepositional phrases that all modify or explain that term elect. So what is the nature of the election of these Christians by God? First of all, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, some would look at the foreknowledge of God there and simply see a looking down through history in advance and seeing what would happen naturally, ordinarily, without any intervention. And then, so based on that knowledge in advance, God simply uh, makes his decree and saves those people who would have on their own, as it were, uh, chosen to have faith in Christ. But foreknowledge biblically speaking, has much more to it than that. And in fact, the, the word know and the, the knowledge uh, that is often spoken of throughout the Bible is much more than a simply cognitive uh, recognition of some fact. It actually is a relational, covenantal word, to know. When it speaks of God knowing his people, it means that God set his love upon them. He knew them in a covenantal way. And so for knowing is really a relational term. It's to know in this covenantal way in advance. Sam Storms says it this way, to foreknow is to forelove. That God foreknew us means that he set his gracious and merciful regard upon us, that he knew us from eternity past with a sovereign and distinguishing delight. God's foreknowledge is an active, creative work of divine love. It is not bare prevision that merely recognizes a difference between those who uh, do and those who do not believe. God's foreknowledge actually creates that difference. So you are elect exiles according to or because of, by virtue of, the foreknowing, that is the, the loving foreordaining of these, uh, these Christians' faith. He foreknew you and thereby chose you. Why are you God's chosen people? Because the Father foreknew you. That's the way that that works out and how, how he expresses that. Then there's a second phrase. 
He said, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then the second phrase is this, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is in view here. Now, sometimes the Bible uses the term sanctification to refer to the gradual, sort of lifelong process of growing in holiness. And that's probably the sense in which we use the term most often. Usually when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about that, that progress that we make over time in becoming more uh, like Jesus. We might call that progressive sanctification. But here, Peter has in view a definitive temporal action uh, of the Spirit of God, where he sets us apart for his purposes and places us into the family of God. This is sometimes called definitive sanctification or positional sanctification. That's another way that the Bible at times uses the term sanctification. Paul does something similar to that in 1 Corinthians, where he lists this, this he gives this list of sins that people used to live in, and he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that sanctified in that, in that context is that immediate one-time sort of removal from sin and setting apart, consecrating for God's holy purposes. And that's the kind of sanctification that Peter has in view here. So in other words, what's in view in this verse is the Christian's conversion. That is that, that first moment of faith upon which he or she is consecrated for God's purpose and declared holy in his sight. And so you are elect exiles in or by virtue of the sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, because the Holy Spirit has picked you up from the domain of sin and darkness and placed you into his family, into his kingdom, and renewed you to a new and holy purpose. You are God's chosen people because the Spirit set you apart. And then the third phrase gives us another glimpse into why or how it is that we are elect exiles, and that's this. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And that phrase has two uh, kind of phrases within it. It's one prepositional phrase grammatically, but with these two ideas for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And here, sometimes in translations, the, these little words, these prepositions get, uh, get complicated. And it's easy for one particular rendering in English or something to give a, a color of meaning um, that uh, that is a little bit harder to see. So in this case where he says that you were elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, I think it's best understood as with the result that. right? So as having been foreknown by the Father and sanctified by the Spirit, the result of that is that you are obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So the foreknowing of the Father and the sanctifying of the Spirit result in those two things, obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. So we got to look at those two things. We got to look at obedience to Jesus and what's meant there and the sprinkling with his blood. I think that obedience in this verse is a synonym for conversion. That is for a believing response to the gospel message. 
I don't think that he's saying here that by the foreknowledge of God and the sanctifying of the Spirit, you have now become like obedient in living out like that progressive sanctification. I don't think that's what he means. I think he's using obedience to Jesus Christ here as a synonym for a believing response to the gospel and being converted from death to life, from darkness to light, right? From the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ and all the various ways the Bible might express that. Um, I think that for a few reasons. First of all, Peter himself uses that phrase similarly elsewhere in the letter. Down in verse 22 of chapter 1, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And I think he doesn't mean there that you've purified your souls by your own like active obedience to God's commands. Because that's actually kind of contrary to Christian theology. You don't purify yourself by obeying God's law, right? He's saying you've purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Namely, you've received it. You've believed it. So a believing response to the truth, uh, the, the gospel message most likely, is what has purified their souls in verse 22. Uh, the apostle Paul uses the language like this very frequently uh, in Romans uh, 1, 5, for example, where he speaks of the obedience of faith. And again, I don't think he means obedience that springs from faith in God. I think he means the believing of the gospel is, an, is itself a, an obedience to the truth, an obedience of, uh, of faith. Faith itself, there being the obedience, that, if that makes sense. So again, we're talking here about the positional reality of Christians, the defining features of our identity in Christ. The Father foreknew you. The Spirit set you apart for his purposes with the result that you've obeyed Jesus Christ. Namely, you've believed in his gospel. So because the Father foreknew you, because the Spirit set you apart, you have believed the gospel. You are obedient to Christ in this sense of conversion. So I think that's, the, that's maybe the side A of this coin of conversion. Right? The result of the Father's foreknowledge and the Spirit's sanctifying is A, our faith, and B, Christ's sprinkling with blood of those who believe. So if obedience is the human side of the coin of conversion, then the sprinkling with blood is Jesus' side of that same coin. So, what is that about? The sprinkling with blood. Well, I think that Peter alludes here to God's initiating of his covenant with Israel through Moses back in Exodus chapter 24. There, the people of Israel pledged their obedience to God's law, and then Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of an ox, symbolizing cleansing and forgiveness. That's a messy and strange way to express that kind of symbolism. And I think we'd probably be more, we're more comfortable with that being symbolic than actually having blood sprinkled upon us. However, it's that image in mind of Moses sprinkling the people with the blood of this ox who sort of stands in between holy God and sinful people, right? And it's that blood, that sprinkling of blood that's a symbol of cleansing and forgiveness. So the sprinkling of blood here in 1 Peter only reinforces the conversion of a Christian under the new covenant. The idea that that's what is in view here. Um, it, so it, it reinforces the conversion of a Christian, and it also points us to the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross, 
where his blood was shed for sin. So when he says that by the foreknowledge of God and the sanctifying of the Spirit, you have been obedient to Christ, that is, you have believed the gospel message about Christ and have thereby been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, he is saying your conversion, your faith in God, and thereby the fact that you are his people is the work of God. Did you notice that all three persons of the triune God are explicitly listed here with a particular role to play. The foreknowledge is of God the Father. The sanctifying is of God the Spirit. The the, the obedience of faith and the sprinkling with blood is is of Jesus Christ the Son. Father, Son, and Spirit are all actively at work in the saving of sinners and the setting apart of sinners for His purposes. So it's the work of God here to say that these aliens, these Gentile exiles, belong to God. They are His chosen people. Yes, they're scattered. Yes, they're exiles and living the lives of sojourners and strangers where they don't fit in. But remember, you belong to God. You've been chosen and set apart for His glory. Perhaps you're familiar with the classic Disney Pixar film, Toy Story. I think there's a really beautiful illustration of this very truth in that story. So there's a, a part in the story where things look really bad. So Buzz Lightyear and Sheriff Woody have been sort of kidnapped by this cruel neighbor, Sid, who has all manner of terrible deaths envisioned for toys and tears them apart and puts them on, you know, together and creates these like weird Frankenstein kind of uh, kind of toys and things like that. Well, they find themselves in a desperate situation. Woody is trapped beneath a plastic basket that's got something heavy sitting on top of it so he can't get out. And Buzz has a rocket strapped to his back. And Sid, the sadistic neighbor, has plans of imminent destruction and carnage in store for these poor toys. And to make matters worse, Buzz has recently discovered that he's not actually a real space ranger. And he's merely a toy. And this realization has sent him into a spiral of depression and despair. If you look at Buzz's face as he stares at the floor in disbelief, in hopelessness, it is a, it is a sorrowful uh, experience. And Woody is there in the basket trying desperately to concoct a plan of escape to return them both to their owner, Andy, who lives in the house next door. But Buzz is not going to help. Buzz is despondent and despairing. He's staring at the floor. He's completely disengaged from the hostile situation surrounding them. What's the point? Who cares if we get blasted into space by Sid, right? That's the attitude that he has. The turning point. The turning point for Buzz comes when Woody delivers an impassioned speech about how great it is to be a toy. And he says... Of, of Andy, he says, over in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. And at that moment, Buzz picks up his foot and he notices maybe for the first time the name Andy emblazoned in black Sharpie across the bottom of his foot. And it's that reminder 
the realization of to whom he belongs that gives Buzz the strength to face his dire situation with courage and hope. And Woody has, thinks it's all lost and he's cra- sat down and, and just decided to give up and then he finds Buzz on top of the basket moving things. Let's go, we gotta get back to Andy's house. Right? That was the turning point, realizing to whom he belongs. Friends, that is what the reality of our election by God achieves for us. In a fallen world that's far from God and hostile to his church, the reminder that we belong to him fills us with the strength and hope to live with courage, to face the dire situations in which we find ourselves. Don't let the doctrine of election that God foreknew and foreordained that we would be his, don't let it remain a sterile sort of frightening philosophy for academics to argue about in classrooms. Let it strengthen your heart with grace, lavish, abundant, unmerited grace to run your race faithfully and live for the glory of God who purchased you for himself with the blood of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This, I think, is what Peter has in mind as he's introducing this letter. Far more than just letting you know I'm Peter and these are the people that I'm intending to write to. No, right out of the gate, he is letting these people know there is deep, eternal, glorious truth about who you are and even more importantly, about whose you are that will equip you for the journey that lies ahead. And then he finishes at the end of verse 2 with this simple salutation. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. And aren't these the central truths and benefits of the gospel? Grace upon grace upon grace flows to us through Jesus Christ who gave his life for us to pay for our sins. Grace of his presence and his strength and his help. The grace of the promise of future redemption, which Peter's going to get into in the passage we'll look at next week. Grace and peace. Peace with God. We were enemies of his. We were rebels. And by his work, he's given us peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. We're at peace with Him because of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of the hardship and the, the, the rejection and the persecution that we may face as Christians in this increasingly hostile world, peace is so desperately needed. And Jesus told His disciples, peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Right? Jesus came to bring us His peace. I believe that the doctrine of election is taught in Scripture, even while I know there is mystery here in the precise relationship between God's sovereignty and human freedom and our moral responsibility to respond to the gospel message with faith. We can have discussions and debates about that. I welcome it. I'm happy for it. Chances are Christians will not get this thing all settled and figured out with one another before we're meeting with Jesus face to face. But here's what is undeniably abundantly clear. If you will repent of your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you belong to him. 
Jesus says in John, excuse me, John says in his gospel, John 1.13, to all who received him, who believed upon his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's pray together.